The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the edition. Each week we look at some of the most important and intriguing issues in the week's magazine with the writers behind them. I'm Lara Prendergast. This week, why is the National Trust in crisis and can it be fixed? Plus, is there going to be a fake meat revolution? And finally, should wedding reading stick to the classics or is it acceptable to go for something a bit more out there? First up, the National Trust Chair, Tim Parker, stepped down last week following complaints from members about the Trust's work highlighting links to Britain's colonial past. In this week's cover piece, Spectator columnist and former editor Charles Moore says there's a crisis at the heart of the organisation. To explain, he joins the podcast now alongside Simon Jenkins, who was the chair of the National Trust between 2008 and 2014. Charles, in your cover piece this week, you suggest that the National Trust is broken. Can you start by outlining to listeners what appears to have happened? Well, I think that the people in charge of the National Trust didn't pay enough attention to what they were letting themselves in for when they started to open it up to what, I don't like the word, but what are called woke ideas. And this really came to a head Well, first of all, it was very, very strange timing because it was all during COVID, so it was a massive crisis and they weren't paying much attention. At the same time, they allowed the interim report, so-called, on slavery and uh, colonialism, which is a tendentious word, of course, to be released. And so suddenly you had a sort of uh, hit list produced by the National Trust about its own properties. And so it was inevitable that people would see this as a sort of attack on the trust, by the trust. And this is an extremely uncomfortable thing to experience for the millions of members, and I think culturally really difficult. It's not because it doesn't matter about slavery or imperial connections, and it's not to say that these shouldn't be studied. But what's clear that the people who were launching this were engaging in a, an ideological war rather than something done out of love for the buildings and the properties and the landscape that the National Trust cares for. It wasn't a heritage or conservation conversation, it was a political one. And therefore, you start to lose trust in the trust. So I think it actually is a crisis of trust. Simon, you were chair of the National Trust from 2008 to 2014. Do you agree with Charles's assessment? It's a matter of proportion. Um, I think Charles and I do agree. Um, I, I don't think either of us have signed up to critical race theory. And I do regard the, uh, the sort of woke cult at the moment as, as seriously um, threatening to many cultural institutions. So I'm completely aware of the risk of this sort of approach to anything um, uh, holds for any big institution. All I would say, um, and I'm not here to defend the National Trust, all I would say is that we really have been here many times before I do think it's a sort of strength of the trust that it does find itself embroiled in running controversies, um, including political ones, and this is not the first, I can tell you, that consume the country. And it's, it's, it's in a sense, it, it's appropriate that these sorts of debates take place, even in an institution as, as um, in, in my view, 
normally pretty immune to this sort of pretty left-wing politics. So um, I, I don't think I disagree with the, the, what might be called the substance of what Charles is saying. I do think it's important to get it in some sort of proportion. Thank you, Simon. I mean, you will know this better than I, but I think we haven't really quite been here before because those, of course, have been great disputes. They've either been on relatively small, though passionate matters, like what happened in Bradenham years ago about whether or not it should be a sort of nuclear-related installation or something like that, or they've been disputes which clearly are about the normal work of the National Trust. But this is very political, and I don't think it's ever happened before that a chairman has had to resign prematurely because of such a thing. And if you're a member of the National Trust, or indeed just a supporter of the whole general idea, you do really want the people who are running it to love it and love what it does. And it's clear, for example, if you read Corin Fowler's seminal book about all of this called Green Unpleasant Land, uh, which is a sort of attack on the English uh, countryside and its colonial connections, slavery connections, you see that there's almost no word of sympathy for these buildings or landscapes or the way they've been cared for. And you wonder, clearly she doesn't love these places. And she has been in charge of this process called Colonial Countryside, which has been working its way through the National Trust, taking children to particular trust properties connected with slavery and getting them to write poems attacking the owners, not just slavery, by the way, but also um, empire. So Lord Curzon, who's a massive, massive benefactor of the trust and a great conservationist, 10-year-old schoolgirls, with the encouragement of the trust, are writing poems about what a terrible man he is. I mean, this does seem to be a sort of cultural revolution idea rather than a sort of interesting contribution to new ways of looking at old things. I do think this is a very odd controversy for the trust to find itself in. It is indeed the case that the National Trust's relationship with the British Empire, let alone with slavery, I regard as pretty tenuous. In other words, it's involved in the sense that vast numbers of British institutions were involved. I think Oxford and Cambridge University were involved. So I, I, I don't take this accusation against the Trust terribly seriously. I don't think it represents the view of the National Trust membership or even most of its staff. This is a, just currently uh, what I regard as a sort of cult. But if I look at it in the, in the, in the, in the historical sense that, that Charles was, uh, I mean, uh, uh, the, the battle over stag hunting fiercely involved both the trust and outside critics of the trust. We had a terrific battle when I was there over badgers, believe it or not. The question of the handling of the uplands, whether they should wild or be rewilded or not, was, was a very fierce battle and involved people who had no particular care for the trust. So these sorts of battles are in the nature of the National Trust. I agree that you don't get many as, as, as vicious as this one. Um, to be honest, I don't think that's why the chairman resigned. He resigned over the post office. But anyway, these are the sorts of things that, that bothers with members, with six million members, uh, one of the biggest national organisations of any sort, do inevitably find themselves involved in. I don't think it's the end of the world. Well, it's, it's not the end of the world, but uh, I, I think what you've got now is a serious disaffection, which is why this organisation called Restore Trust has come into being. And it's not only about the slavery and colonialism report. It's about the whole way the thing is run, in which um, volunteers feel disrespected, in which a whole load of sort of politically correct instructions go out to people, in which the National Trust declarations of its own purposes literally cease to refer to the word houses 
or the word gardens, and instead is is its strategy for 2025, for example, is about um, goes on about uh, uh, equality and diversity and so on, and simply doesn't mention houses or gardens. And so there's a sense that the actual original purposes which have made the Trust the biggest and most successful conservation organisation in history are being swerved away from and neglected and replaced by other purposes. And I think that's very demoralising. And I know it's alarmed people right from former bigwigs of the Trust like yourself to the day-to-day volunteers to a great many members. And if you look at the history of the Trust, it's usually been led and don't want to make your ears burn, but by people of real standing who you know, are, are figures in the land and can command the backing of ministers and donors and intellectuals and scholars and so on and hold the confidence of the public. And I think there's a crisis of leadership in the institution now because Mr Parker didn't give the leadership. Hilary McGrady, the Director General, trying very hard but far too much on her plate and you have a massive organisation which is really has lost its way. That is, that is serious, and it, I would say it had to change rather fast. I do, I do disagree there. In the first place, um, many of my predecessors, uh, I wouldn't speak um, uh, quite as highly of as he does, almost exclusively they went to Eton. And in fact, I think it's a sign of the strength of the trust that that is no longer the case. It is not the people who, who you call the donors and the capitalists and so on who, who, um, who the trust needs to keep in with. It is now a mass organisation, and it's absolutely appropriate that it has to involve itself in the sorts of arguments and discussions that big organisations get involved in. Uh, and six, approaching six million members is extraordinarily large. I spent most of my time fighting shy of controversies because I knew that with six million members, you would never, ever keep them all happy. But as far as politics is concerned, and even, even what might be called the politics of the trust itself, the biggest battles I had early on were for something called Disneyfication. There were people who genuinely thought the National Trust had done exactly what Charles has just described, which is, in a sense, betrayed its, its, its history and its, its antecedents uh, and its message. Uh, it was not. It was trying to reach out. I I'm not ashamed of this rather corny word, um, to, to, to then four to five million members and talk their language and show them things they wanted to see. I felt that the experience of going to a house was a meaningful phrase. Uh, it was not just sitting there as a, as a static museum, which was what many of our older time members wanted it to be. So there's always this argument going on, and it's always, it's always the insiders and the outsiders, the old guard and the new guard. There's nothing really new here. The terms of the debate, I agree with Charles on, is a sad debate for the trust to be trapped in. It's not alone in that, in that predicament, and I'm sure it'll get out of it. But it is not that new. But that point about the terms of the debate does come back to the leadership. You have to be able, as a leader of a cultural organisation, to express its culture. It's not enough, it's essential, but it's not enough to be good at organising it. I feel that the trust, not only because of politics, actually, but because of a sort of volume strategy where um, increasing the membership has really been put, seemed to be put above everything else, has lost uh, learning and has lost the capacity to articulate its great strengths and its depths. And in fact, one of the things that people complain most about, and I've noticed very much in, say, National Trust websites uh, of particular properties, is sort of ignorance um, of the properties in their charge. And almost one feels sometimes this is a cultivated ignorance in which words like spaces or green spaces are used 
rather than talking about the actual buildings, rather than talking about the works of art, rather than talking about the gardens, rather than talking about the history and the families and so on. And in a way, it's just another thing that's chucked into all these terms that are flying around about slavery, about going green, about accessibility, all of them in some ways important subjects. But the trust seems not to be sticking to its distinctive qualities, and it is its distinctive qualities which make it trusted and national and popular. Simon, just finally, can I finish by asking, what sort of person would you like to see replace Tim Parker? Well, I, I really don't know. People ask that question, don't say someone like me. Um, but to me, I, I, I mean, I, I do disagree with Charles, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to hear. You know, we, we're honestly not there just to keep the House of Lords happy. We really aren't. And the Trust has always had this battle between modernisers and, and, and old guard. It really has. Uh, I mean, the, 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 the sorts of things we, we got involved in is you know, moth conservation, back-to-back houses in Birmingham. Uh, should, we, should we be worried about the Beatles' houses? Um, these battles were quite strident. They weren't trivial. Uh, they were strident in a sort of way, as the present one over colonialism is. I don't think it'll go on too long. I think it, it, I mean, I'm not quarrelling with this. I think it, 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 is, it is a sad blind alley that the Trust has found itself up. But, but, the, but the, the task of chairing and running the Trust... It's about I mean, heading up a, a vast, disparate family. And you expect it to go one minute to... I mean, I, I couldn't... Goodness knows there's a speech that I had to give about, about, about you know, peat conservation, followed by you know, working-class Bradford. I mean, it, it, it was, it's a wonderful organisation. Uh, it, need, it needs, in a sense, a breadth of approach in its leadership. But, um, but it's, it's, not, it's not impossible, and it's, 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 um, it will be done. It'll see us both out. It will go on, though, Simon. This argument, I'm afraid, it will go on. We've been promised that next year is a year of challenging histories in the National Trust. That's what it's called. So that is a full-on uh, invitation to the Corin Fowlers and Sally Ann Huxtables and so on to keep going on all of this. Uh, and it's absolutely inside the system now. It's a real cultural challenge, and I'm afraid it's not about to go away unless the management does really change. Thank you, Simon and Charles. Next up, Anthony Brown, a Conservative MP and chair of the Environment Parliamentary Group, has written in the magazine this week about the seeming inevitability of cultured meats landing on our plate and why it's nothing to fear. He joins me now, along with The Spectator's recipe columnist and my co-host on the Table Talk podcast, Olivia Potts, to discuss the implications of this new food frontier. Anthony, you begin your piece this week with a story about a chicken nugget which has made headlines. Can you start by telling listeners about this chicken nugget? Well, it's both a very ordinary chicken nugget and a very special one. So it was sold on December the 19th in the 1880 restaurants in Singapore. And it's the first time that meat has been sold for human consumption that didn't actually come from an animal. This was a chicken nugget that was uh, made in a bioreactor uh, and it was approved by the Singapore Food Standards Agency as fit for human consumption, the first time that any regulation in the world has done that. So this was the first commercial sale of meat that didn't come from an animal but came from a laboratory. And uh, there are lots of people who think that this is a turning point in human history, that we'll move quite rapidly to uh, laboratory, lab-grown, more cultured meat, as it's called, rather than uh, slaughtered meat. And do we know how the chicken nugget tasted? Did it taste like a normal chicken nugget? Well, I haven't tried it myself yet, although I'd certainly be very interested in uh, trying it. And that's one of my little projects is to try and get a tasting in the UK. But uh, the the BBC did send a, the BBC Food Programme sent a 
producer out there and uh, they tried the chicken nugget and they said that it was uh, indistinguishable from the real thing and they said it was really uncanny how the both the taste and the texture was the same as real chicken and you just wouldn't be able to tell it apart. And they also spoke to the chef at the restaurant who said that actually you don't need different recipes. It's exactly the same as chicken meat. So anything that you use to, any recipe you use for chicken, you could use for this uh, cultured chicken. And in fact now um, it's there's food delivery companies in Singapore that sell this cultured uh, chicken nuggets is one, one of the top hotel restaurants in Singapore has started selling it so it's it's uh, spreading quite rapidly at least in Singapore. Livy what do you make of this news as as a food foodie and also as a someone who's done a butchery course what do you make of this news that we can now grow fake meat? Uh, I think I feel quite conflicted about it I think on the face of it there are very good arguments for fake meat um, we know that from an environmental and climate change point of view, we are consuming, on average, far too much meat. And we also know that from a welfare point of view, a lot of the, the mass-produced meat that we are consuming is, is coming from places with very well, low welfare standards. You know, we're not talking about the high-end British farming that we're proud of. We're talking about, you know, battery farms of chickens. From a, a craft point of view, uh, and having watched brilliant butchers do brilliant butchery, and possibly from an emotional point of view, I find the idea of, of losing that trade and craft and skill set very, very sad. But I'm also not convinced that even if lab-grown meat were to completely take off, that we would in fact lose that. I think, first of all, there is a huge amount of, of pride and love for meat that is grown in one's home country and, and butchered by those who know how to do it. But also, at the moment, the reality of lab-grown meat is that it is far, far easier to grow meat that is going to be highly processed, like chicken nuggets or lean mints. It's much harder to grow fat. It's much harder to grow pieces or cuts of meat that we prize, like, say, a marbled ribeye that combine the fat and the, the lean together. And so I suspect and hope that even if lab-grown meat were to be very successful there would still be a market for high-end, well-farmed, well-butchered meat. Anthony, presumably you have a number of constituents who are farmers or perhaps work in the meat industry. Are they nervous about the rise of of lab-grown meat? Well, part of the reason for me writing this article is I think there's very little awareness of how rapidly this is developing. So uh, they're not nervous in the sense that they I don't think that many people have heard that much about it. Uh, I think that will change quite rapidly now. I mean, there's, there's, as I mentioned in the article, 30 companies around the world, startups that are developing these uh, cultured meat products. There's billions of, literally billions of pounds of investment going in it. It's advancing just extraordinarily rapidly. The prices are coming down. Uh, all different types of meat are being developed but I do think uh, possibly they should be worried about it and again that was one of the points of writing the article that actually if you are a livestock farmer then it's you know quite possible there's in fact possibly likely that your demand for your products would suffer as a result of this cereal farmers and I, I say this as the MP for South Cambridgeshire it's mainly cereal farmers uh, I think will be less affected because actually a lot of the raw materials these cultural products are also cereals uh, as well um, but yeah it will have a huge impact on on farming and livestock but I just want to pick up on one of the points that Olivia said earlier and I, I, I generally agree with her 
except about high-end products and craft and so on. I think a lot of the human reaction immediately would be they don't like Frankenburgers, etc. I think people would probably, a lot of people get over that to start with. But this high-end meats, I think given the amount of money that's going in it, the scale of the commercial opportunity, and this is sort of capitalism in action, as it were, uh, I think you'll get a lot of businesses really trying to develop specialist types of meat from this. So, for example, there's uh, the Mitsubishi Corporation, which you don't normally think of as a food company, but it does have a food division, uh, has teamed up with a uh, an Israeli cultured meat company to develop wag, develop Wagyu steak. So this is a very specialist Japanese high-end steak uh, to, for delivery in the Japanese market in two years' time. I've no idea what it'll taste like. Uh, but presumably, if they're investing that amount of money, they must be fairly convinced that it will uh, will have a market there. But the other thing, and I think, and I just say this isn't a commercial thing or a sort of capitalist thing or environmental thing at all, but it's just as somebody, as a politician who studies human nature, that I think there could be a new taboo developing quite quickly. If there is a simple alternative to slaughtered meat, uh, that people might start seeing it as a taboo to eat meat that came from an animal that was killed. And that is, I'm not saying that's right at all, because I personally have actually got no problem with killing animals to eat them at all. And I I, I love eating meat, uh, all types of meat, as much of it as possible, thank you. But it's I, I can just see that actually it will become quite a big sort of culture. There could well be quite a big culture change where soon people really look down their noses at people who eat uh, meat that has been killed and that could change uh, large parts of the industry that wouldn't otherwise be changed and would survive for the reasons that Olivia was pointing out you know the high end and the craft and so on. Liv, Anthony makes the point in his piece that there are certain countries that don't seem hugely receptive to the idea of meat of this lab-grown meat particularly the French. France's agriculture minister tweeted recently is this really the society we want for our children? Me? No, no. I say it clearly, meat comes from life, not from laboratories. Count on me that in France, meat will stay natural and never artificial. What do you think we should make of that? I think that, as Anthony says in his piece, that the UK is, is likely to be more receptive to the lab-grown meat than somewhere like France. We, I think, as a country, are more accepting of processed meats in, in the, you know, in terms of the stuff that's going to come in initially at a lower price point. It's all very expensive at the moment. It's, it's dropping rapidly in the amount, in terms of the price that, that it costs to create and the price that it would be marketed at. But I think we are still likely to see uh, lab-grown chicken nuggets and lab-grown burgers before we see lab-grown Wagyu meat on the commercial market. But I, I suspect that UK customers are more open to that kind of product than the, the French who are very traditional in the kind of meat that they eat. That said, I do think that there will still exist in the UK the problem that Anthony mentioned of, of Frankenberg is the, the ick factor of, of something that we just don't really understand generally in the marketplace. There's been some level of resistance to plant-based burgers that ape meat burgers that, that use beetroot juice to make it look like a a burger or a steak is rare or bloody. And while that is intended to lure in the strongest of the meat eaters, those who really need the very, the very similitude of the meat eating experience, to others it's sort of going into uncanny valley territory. And I suspect we might see a little bit of the same thing from consumers when it comes to, to lab-grown meat, that people just think, it's a, at least initially, it's a bit weird and they're not really sure how they feel about it or whether they want it in their bodies, even though it is essentially the same as slaughtered meat. 
Anthony, just to finish on, you are the chair of the all-party parliamentary group on the environment. Do you, do you think it's a better case to make that we should eat fake meat or eat less meat or even eat no meat? What, what's the best for the environment? Well, there was one report recently that said that the, uh, the greenhouse gas emissions from fake meat or cultured meats were 70% below uh, that of that meat that came from an animal. So that is a dramatic reduction. And certainly there is quite widespread concern in, amongst environment groups about the greenhouse gas emissions that come from livestock farming. It's about apparently about 15% of the total. Uh, but also meat consumption around the world is growing quite rapidly, and particularly in the developing world where people are getting wealthier and want to sort of upgrade their diets, as it were. Um, so there's definitely quite a strong uh, environmental argument to move towards cultured meat or, or fake meat, depending on what, how you want to call it. And But the difference between that and just giving up meat altogether is is relatively small by comparison. So I think for people like me, really, who do care about climate change, uh, but love eating actual meat, cultured meat could be quite an attractive alternative. Olivia and Anthony, thank you very much. And finally, with COVID restrictions seemingly still set to be removed this summer, wedding season is back on. A big part of the modern ceremony is the readings, and in an increasingly secular society, the scope for these readings grows wider and wider. This week, Laura Freeman writes for the magazine about the do's and don'ts of wedding readings, and she joins me now along with the Reverend Canon Dr Alison Joyce, who is the rector of St Bride's Church in London. Laura, in your piece for the magazine this week, you say that you're thinking about starting a side hustle recommending readings for weddings. Let's start with the perfect wedding reading. What do you think makes the perfect wedding reading? Oh, well, I think not too spicy for a start. I think you want nothing kind of saucy, nothing that's going to, you know, make your your godmother's blush. And I think nothing too soppy or sentimental either. I, mean, I think there probably isn't a perfect wedding reading, just as there isn't a perfect wedding or a perfect couple. But I think you can spot an imperfect one when 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 you when you hear it. Alison, you must have sat through quite a few weddings, including my own. What what do you think makes a good wedding reading? I think it has to be something that is appropriate to the couple. It's worth remembering that these days, many of the couples who come to us for weddings are so unfamiliar with church life at all. And of course, being the established church, people have a legal right to be married in their parish church if, and, you know, if there's no lawful impediment. And you can say to them, well, have you thought about hymns and what hymns you like? And they don't know any. You know, oh, what's that one they sing on the terraces? Abide with me. You know, sorry, not one of the top ten hits. So, I mean, you're often starting at a very low level, generally. And very often, the second wedding reading, that's the non-biblical reading, is the one little bit of the service where they can have a say. They can actually choose something that's meaningful for them. But I think that's precisely why it can be a complete minefield. And I thought, Laura, I may make Laura's article compulsory reading for all my wedding couples. I know, I wish but, I'd had it before. Yes, <laughs> because I, I think you nail all the problems brilliantly you do it extremely insightfully well let's talk about the bad readings and or what do you think makes a very bad wedding reading well I think you've also you have got to think about your poor reader so I mean I had someone say to me that they read from A.A. Milne's Us Too which begins wherever I am there's always poo there's always poo in me and goes on in a similar vein for about 50 lines and she had to say the word poo 25 times in front of a congregation and I don't want to be too puerile about it but I think you know that is you know a bit of a challenge to do it seriously 
I mean, I think it's hard as well, because often the person you want reading isn't necessarily the natural orator. You know, you want your sister, but she's maybe not a very good public speaker. So, you know, please, no kind of hundred lines, no T.S. Eliot, no nothing kind of too difficult. But I think there's a similar problem, just as people may not know many hymns. I mean, I have friends say, look, my husband and I, we're not big readers. You know, we're united by sport or we're united by art. And then you've got to ask them to kind of come up with a a sonnet that sort of encapsulates their entire relationship. And I think that's a bit of a struggle. Alison, what do you make of this trend that Laura identifies with people having readings from, say, Harry Potter or Sex and the City. We've got Friends, Justin Timberlake, even Disney's Frozen. What, what do you yeah, think sure. of that? So long as it's not actively offensive, <laughs> um, I will allow them to suggest anything, but then guide them carefully through it. And I think some of the factors that I do alert them to is it's all very well choosing something that you feel is cute and of the moment. But you've got to think how you're going to feel about this in 40 years' time. And if you think back and cringe that you could have gone for something quite so puerile, that's not a good choice. So I do try and steer them in the direction of something that will withstand the test of time. So, you know, I mean, I think the one kind of option that really does bring a chill to my soul is when the bride says, my niece has written a special poem. No! And... You know, and you just know it's going to be yards of appalling doggerel that doesn't quite scan, in which the only word she could find to rhyme with wedding was bedding. <laughs> and, you know, and in those cases, what I, what I normally do is say, marvellous, do you know, I think it, it would be wasted in the service. I think that's something for the reception. But you learn the pastoral skills that <laughs> are necessary to guide And have you ever had to put your foot down? Have you ever had to say, um, no, we can't have that as a reader? Yes, only when things were just, it was seedy rather than actively offensive. You know, <laughs> I, I, and actually, the one where I was really caught out was when a different version was read on the day from the one that I'd seen. And I can't, to my shame, I can't remember what it is because I ought to have it in my chamber of horrors. But it was a, a reading that was suggested and it was slightly offbeat, but hey, you know, they were a very intelligent, articulate couple. And I Googled it, found the text and thought, well, it's a bit, you know, but hey, I'll let them have it. And what I'd read was clearly an expurgated version because there's a whole section about I think orifices of various kinds were included and I just didn't see it coming but this is why I always absolutely insist on seeing everything in print in advance not just you know accessing them myself and I think that's why I don't necessarily mind I mean a friend said to me she wanted the Shakespeare you know let me not to the marriage of true minds admit impediment and she said to me, is that classic or is it cliche? And I think, actually, go for the classics. You know, if it's safe, if it's been said a hundred times before, uh, having said which, I do have a slight kind of thing against that Roots Underground passage from Captain yeah, Pirelli's Captain Mandolin, because I think that gets yes. trotted out quite a lot. And actually, in a, in a previous generation, it was Khalil Gibran used to come out a lot as well. You know, there's certain readings that are incredibly popular. I mean, that was the kind of yuppie wedding reading of choice for for a previous era. But I think think what you say about that reading is that it's too obvious when you describe that particular one. And I agree, but of course there's a reason why these things get overused, which is the first time you hear it, you think, actually, there's something 
thought-provoking and different in there. So it's actually quite a nice little reading. But I react exactly the same as you do now, because, oh, a bit hackneyed, because you hear it a lot. But that's how, that's how things become, you know, established, I suppose. And Laura, just finally to finish, tell us a bit about the reading that you picked for, or Andy, your husband, picked for your wedding, because you finish by talking about it in the piece. Well, it was weird. I, mean, I think I managed reasonably well not to go bridezilla about anything else, but we, we still, about three weeks to go before the wedding, hadn't picked a reading. And I was sort of nagging Andy every night, and I said, well, look, I've done the dress, and I've done the cakes, and I've done the wedding list. Please, can you pick the reading? And he, I mean, he, to do him his credit, he was sort of pulling books off the shelves and looking through everything, and he was going, going through books like Vanity Fair, and I was saying, you know, do you imagine us as, you know, a kind of, you know, a Becky and a George? Because that didn't end very happily. And then I was like, I don't want to be, I don't want to Ted... Hughes and a Sylvia Plath or a F. Scott Fitzgerald and a Zelda Fitzgerald, you know, no one where anyone has ended tragically. And we sort of got together over a shared love of George Orwell many, many years ago. So he chose a passage from George Orwell's Confessions of a Book Reviewer, which sort of described this balding, spectacled, middle-aged man in a stew of book reviews and cigarettes and coffee. Um, and he obviously felt that this perfectly summed up his bride. Anyway, it gave us a giggle on the day and um, at least he knows what his future might look like. Lauren Allison, thank you very much for joining. And that's it for the edition this week. If you've enjoyed what you heard and want to know more about the stories we've touched on, do subscribe to the magazine for a more in-depth dive. And of course, please do leave us a review and a star rating on whatever platform you're listening on. I'm Nara Prendergast, and thank you for listening. The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher.